Hello, my friends, and welcome back. Welcome back to Idle Chatter. Boy, one second into the show, and I'm ready miss speaking. I guess uh, 2022 is not going to be any different than 2018, 2019, 2021, what have you. So, hey, hopefully everything is going well for you. This is your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. And uh, it is a damp, snowy, well, icy day. We're getting a little bit of ice, a little bit of a winter mix, they call it here. And I guess they call it the same place all around the uh, all around the country. Winter mix, you got a little bit of rain, snow, sleet, ice. Uh, not too, too bad yet. We had about six inches of snow the other day. It was only supposed to be one to three, but it ended up being a little bit more than six. I had to plow it, so uh, I was hoping it was the around the one inch where I don't have to plow it, where I could just uh, shovel the driveway in and shovel the girls out. The girls are my hens, my trumpets, and um, that they. Uh, but when it, I have to shovel shovel that out when it's that deep, and uh, even if it's not that deep, I always shovel it for them, and then I put um, uh, wood shavings down so it's so it's warm on their feet and in their pen. They have a 30-foot by 50-foot pen, and then they have a couple of enclosed coops in there, and they have, I think, three or four different roosts. Let me see. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, four different roosts for them to go on, and uh, it's a nice little, uh, nice arrangement for them. They enjoy it, but they don't like it uh, when it's covered with snow, and I don't blame them, so I always have to shovel that out for them. And uh, let me see what else... <clears throat> That is basically about it. I went to the, uh, I attended, I should say, the Keystone Farm Show in York, Pennsylvania the other day. And that's always a pretty good show. It's it's basically, if, it's, if it doesn't have anything to do with production agriculture, it's not there. So it's equipment. So, I mean, so it's a good show in that sense. It's equipment, it's seeds, it's chemicals, things of that nature. It's not like you're going to go over there and uh, buy uh, cotton candy or something. Because a lot of these, there's another show that I hope to go to this coming week, which is called the Pennsylvania Farm Show. And it's a it's a pretty good show, but it's, it's more for the, uh, I guess, for the suburbanite so they have a lot of stuff that people are selling things or what have you but i'm a i'm a member of the pennsylvania no-till association even though i am in new jersey but there is not a new jersey no-till association it was supposed to be they had a couple of meetings and it actually went quite well but i guess they couldn't make it happen so i'm a member of the pennsylvania no-till and they have a a, a plot there that i want to see with live cover crop growing so it's i've I think it's about fifteen or 1,600 square feet, so it's not huge, maybe a little bit larger. But they actually, uh, I guess, brought soil in and planted cover crop and watered it and what have you. So I definitely want to go check that out. So God willing, I will be able to go this week. Who knows? But that York, that Keystone Farm Show in York, like I said, it's a good show, but it's just a nightmare to get to from here. You know, when you farm in New Jersey, there's nothing close by because you really don't have too many even though there's a lot of agriculture in new jersey we don't have the level of support uh, either businesses that support agriculture or trade shows or seminars or workshops that they have right over the border in pennsylvania but the whole idea is that a lot of that a lot of those shows are in lancaster county or down by lancaster and there's no direct way to get there i mean 
it's a minimum of 200 miles. You could probably, if you go a more direct route, it's probably about 180 miles, 185 miles. But it's all secondary roads, and you're going through towns and get behind school buses, and you know everything starts in the morning. And it's not this is these shows and these events and these seminars are based upon that you coming 200 miles to go there. So, and it's just far, it's not far enough to go in a hotel to go to a hotel. But then also, there's not a lot of hotels nearby there. So you're riding an hour to get to the hotel, and an hour the next morning, you say, well, another you know, another hour and a half or two hours, I'll be home. So it's just right at that point of no return. But that Keystone Farm show in the York County Fairgrounds is just a hassle to get to because whatever. And it's it's not on the outskirts of town. It's in York, which is an old town. And you would tend to think that they would have some signs. You know, York County Fairgrounds, York County Fairgrounds, which is a fairground that they use throughout the year. I mean, not just for this show. And uh, there's no signs. I haven't been there for a few years. And I kind of remember how to get there. And But it's, I'm going to use the word stressful for lack of better terms. I mean, it's not like you're having a heart attack. But you know, when you travel a lot, and which I do go different places for business, is that sometimes something looks like, it looks like a place that you saw, but that place was in Ohio or Michigan or Oklahoma. And you say, oh, I think I got to make a right here. I think I got to make a right here. And then you, fi- you, know, then you find out that, uh, that your mind is all messed up and you're fooling yourself. So it would be nice if they just had signs that I'm not saying every 50 feet, but you know, York County Fairgrounds this way, York County Fairgrounds this way. So at least you have the confidence that you're going in the right direction. You're going through that part of York which got all built up with shopping centers and stores and car dealers and it's it every time i go there it changed the appearance of it changed so i came and say you know turn by the taco bell because now there's two taco bells or, or whatever so I, i'm just complaining but anyway uh i'm sorry about that but hopefully gonna go to that to go to the pennsylvania farm show in harrisburg which is a lot easier to get to it's right off the interstate and it's uh you get off and it's right there i think it's called progress boulevard and you follow the signs and you could see the interstate right from the parking lot and you just get back on interstate 81 and away you go happy motoring so that is the agenda god willing for this week but more importantly that i'm that i'm going to have my uh good friend tony cucarulo and he's going to eventually be in on one of my on the on the road podcast because he's a real real enthusiastic car guy but he's a mechanical contractor and years ago when charlotte and i built the house i think i told you a story he put the boiler in he put my central air and he did a whole bunch of stuff like that and he doesn't really do residential things he only he does commercial work and more on the industrial side big buildings but uh, for, for people he knows, he'll do residential stuff. But he's not a residential type of guy where you, you know, get his name out of the yellow pages and call him up and say that you need something done on your furnace or your boiler. But we have a boiler, and Tony put in years ago when we built the house, as I started to say, and it's a wild McLean Gold oil-fired we, we um, heat here with oil, which is basically uh, dyed, undyed, or dyed a different color diesel fuel and uh it's baseboard hot water and it's a uh it's got a beckett 
Beckett burner on it, so it's a wild McLean with a Beckett burner, and it has a uh, superstore uh, indirect um, hot water heater. So what it does, it's a fourth zone, uh, fourth zone off the boiler, and it has a coil in the water t- in the hot water tank, and the uh, the baseboard water goes through there and heats the water. So. Uh, that's it's called an in i believe they call it an indirect hot water heater and it's worked very very well it's about well it's as old as the house so the house was built in 96 so that's how old it is and um so we had that but anyway so tony's gonna come and then we end up taking the whole boiler apart so uh he he's the uh, the expert so i help him on his extra set of hands and then we talk cars or whatever so we take the whole boiler apart and we uh clean it all between the tubes and vacuum it all out and we have special brushes it seems that the wild mclean uh i don't, i forgot what the actual name for that part of the boiler is it's not the it's not the core i forgot what it's called that uh, where the uh, water goes because it's hot water and then the flame goes up in between there it gets built up with carbon but they're very the, the tubes I, i'm going to call it tubes for lack of better terms unless i think of it think of the term and uh they get carpeted up between there so there's a special set of brushes that you need they're almost like chimney sweep brushes that you go down there and you uh knock off the carbon and you have a shop vac running in the firebox and you knock the carbon off and the shop vac sucks it all up so we go through there vacuum out the chimney and then um, we'll put a new nozzle in it I'm going to put new, we're going to put new electrodes. They told me I want to put new electrodes in it and um, obviously the filter. And um, we don't need to go through the pump. The pump is all fine. I uh, Tony put a gauge on. We put a gauge on a couple years ago, which I love. So I could always, whenever it runs, I could check the oil, the pressure, the operating pressure, which is 100 pounds. And, um, and then what we'll do is we'll put that all back together, clean it up. And then he got a new combustion meter. So I'm really excited about that and we're going to uh, set it all up with the combustion meter so i love i love things like that so um, setting something up with instrumentation so what we're going to basically do is we're going to i'm going to have him set it up by ear and by eye looking in the flame in the firebox and then see how close it is and then see how much we could tweak it with the with the meter and i'm from my experience is that he's pretty good with that so we'll probably get it almost dead nuts on but we could confirm it with the meter and then tweak it a little bit to make it more efficient. But if you don't clean that carbon out between those, like I'm going to, then again, I said I'm going to call it the tubes, is that you limit your heat transfer to the to the water. So if you limit your heat transfer to the water, it acts as an insulator. Then what happens is that it takes longer to to heat up the water in the boiler. And that, that is not the domestic water, that's the heating supply. And then you have you end up using more oil. So uh, it's it's wasteful. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to go through that. It's been a few years since we've taken it apart. We, In theory, we like to do it every two years to three years to so take it completely apart, but it's probably been five now. So uh, I'm interested to see how much carbon is in there and how I treat all of my oil so i run all my oil is treated with the fppf brand uh sludge be gone and that was supposed to that uh, dissolves the sludge in the tank and then also is supposed to be a combustion uh aid so hey we'll see we'll see what it looks like but i um, didn't like it going this long but uh 
sometimes uh, life gets in the way. So that is basically that. And let me see what else I wanted to tell you. Uh, oh, the other day I was in town. This is just, you know, like FYI, rambling stuff. The other day I was in town to go to the post office. We've got a pretty big post. Well, it's not huge. But uh, there's a smaller post office by me, but our mail comes from the Hackettstown post office, not the Alamucci post office. So I, I happened to be in town, so I uh, needed to drop some letters in the post office in the morning before they opened up. And for some reason, one of the mail carriers there, I couldn't see who it was. Not that I would know who it is. But they probably have about 20 trucks run out of there, give or take. And they those little postal, those little square postal trucks that they're supposed to be replacing. But anyway, uh, they have GM 2.5 liter uh, uh, Iron Duke throttle body engines in it. So for some reason, one of these, I don't know who it was, it was dark yet. It was five, maybe six o'clock in the morning. They opened the lobby at six feet to dump to drop mail in. And the guy, it was, it was okay. One wasn't terribly cold. It was maybe 13 or 14 degrees. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't, it wasn't 70 degrees either. And for some reason, this guy started the postal truck and it started right up. I, I said, boy, I think started, uh, started very quickly. And, uh, I don't think he let it run 10 seconds and he shut it off. And, you know, that is the worst thing in the world you could do to any gasoline engine, uh, specifically when it's 13 or 14 degrees outside. And let me explain to you why. It's simply because what is going to happen <clears throat> is that you obviously need a much richer mixture on gasoline to start it to cold start an engine. And cold, remember, cold is considered cold is below operating temperature. So at a 90 degree day to the initial start is a cold start, then 10 degrees below zero day is a cold start also. And there's different levels of cold start. But you you need a substantially richer mixture because of the internal friction in the engine, the low rate of vaporization, which is the phase change of gasoline when the temperature is low, and uh, you and the uh, the lack of volatility of the fuel because of the vaporization, we'll put it that way. So what happens is that when you start cold start a, a gasoline engine, that you're going to have this very, very rich mixture. So this engine lit right off, which I was surprised it started that quickly. And uh, but they shut the key, the person, I don't know if it was a man or woman, shut the key right off, I couldn't see. So now what is going to happen is you're going to have all that residual fuel in the combustion chamber, and you did not allow the spark plug to get hot enough to burn off the cranking fuel so what is going with the spark plug to before so it starts to self-clean the porcelain and the tip of the spark plug the central electrode needs to get to at least 500 degrees fahrenheit and then maintain that temperature for it to burn off and clean itself so what will happen if you do something like that is the, the spark plug will remain wet because you have all of this raw fuel in the combustion chamber and you shut it right off. Not all four, there are four cylinder motors, so not all four spark plugs will remain wet, but they probably, three out of the four will be wet and one will be partially wet. And then when you go back to restart it, what'll happen is, is that instead of the electricity from the coil arcing the spark plug to create what we call the ionization window, 
for the fuel-air mixture to ignite, it's going to follow the what the dampness that is on the, the center electrode and the side electrode, and it's, instead of arcing, it's going to follow right down to ground, and you're going to have spark coming from the coil. If you did check it for spark, it has spark, but you're not going to have any spark arcing the plug because you left the plug wet. And, you know, keep in mind that because there is no air movement in the cylinder and if the valves are closed well the valves are going to be closed on some cylinders right the thing is that that's not really going to evaporate off you could come back four or five days later and that plug is still going to be partially damp believe it or not not as damp as it was during that faux pas but it's not going to start so the whole key is that when you start a gasoline engine even in the summer but specifically in the winter time i don't care whether it's a snow blower or what have you you need to let it run long enough i know i, I know i you you hear me preach i don't like idling a, a, a cold engine right but the thing is that you need to let it run you know 60 to 90 seconds or a little bit more so those spark plugs will clean themselves off because you'll be greeted with a no start uh, so if this mailman came back out 10 minutes later an hour later and went to go on his route there's a very good possibility that that engine did not start or if he was lucky it fired on one cylinder and then that was it and then maybe it would get going but keep in mind is that while when they're when you're cranking it you're you're wetting the plugs further so it's it, you don't want to do that whether it's a lawnmower whether it's a snowblower whether it's any type of gas engine you want to if you're going to start it let it run for about if it's a cold start let it run for 90 seconds or so and that'll get the spark plug cleaned off enough that you will be able to have a clean or a relatively clean firing on the next event so that is basically that so a little uh a little just fyi if you didn't already know that so what are we going to get in today 18 minutes into the show well it's all about education so i guess that is education and uh i what i want to talk about today is and i've spoken about this in a different light maybe a year or two ago uh mechanical equilibrium and so keeping things in balance and what i want to talk about today is that marking different parts when you take something when 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 you disassemble it all right and the other and the other aspect of it is is to understand that there are all different levels of mechanical equilibrium and or in being in balance so you could you could very fine balance a tire or you could coarse balance a tire you could very fine balance a crankshaft or you could coarse balance a crankshaft you could very fine balance a drive shaft or you could coarse balance a drive shaft and that is something that you need to at least recognize especially <clears throat> with a road vehicle and with farm equipment and a piece of farm equipment that whatever is rotating spins at a relatively higher rpm uh, one of the things with like a pto on a lot of well on tractors usually there's a 540 rpm pto or i think it's a a thousand rpm pto my tractor has a 540 rpm well i shouldn't say it i mean you're supposed to run it at 540 you could run it above that if you open a throttle board but the tack is marked where it would be 540 on the uh on the uh, uh engine speed so as far as the gearing is for the pto because of that relatively low 
speed 540 revolutions per minute it's a little bit more forgiving than something that would be spinning faster but the whole idea is it's not benign to it and that's what you really need to understand it's not benign to to uh to harmonics which is we would call under the guise of nvh noise vibration and harshness so that is what we're going to discuss today and then we have a a listener's letter i believe it's a listener Yes, he contacted me, and uh, he has a problem with a, an older John Deere 3020 gas engine tractor, and it's Mr. Gene Thrum, Thurm, T-H-U-R-M, Thurm. So, Mr. Thurm, I apologize for uh, for uh, mispronouncing your name. And then we have a new toolbox test. So let's get going into talking about mechanical equilibrium. You know, uh, I was watching a video the other day, some some farmer i i don't know where it was uh i, I watch this guy i i i stump I, I don't make a habit of watching this stuff but sometimes i do and i'm not making any excuses but i like to watch them because specifically and usually anybody who's doing a youtube video is from a larger farm usually and that's the ones that i look at because i want to i, I want to be exposed to the thought process of somebody with a very large farm with different equipment with with uh just a different mindset than smaller acreage so we have all we our farm is small acreage and people around here i mean probably a, a big farm here is a thousand to twelve hundred acres which is a lot but it's really not a lot compared to you know somebody with 25 30 40 50 thousand acres that they're farming so and then my operations like building a ship in a bottle versus what they're doing but what i like to do is watch some of those videos because i get exposed to the equipment that they have the way they're operating it and all the different things that are going on and how they're using it and what their expectations are and sadly for the most part and i'm saying this always respectfully they may be excellent excellent farmers and growers as far as uh, raising whatever crop they're raising and uh growing but they usually kind of fall very short on the machinery side and i'm not saying they don't know how to operate the machine that i don't know that they don't know how to drive the combine i'm not saying that to a, or a planter or what have you but the mechanical aspect and the care aspect of the machinery and then lots of times they draw conclusions or espouse things through the microphone that really are not correct or so whatever but it gives me exposure and the reason why i want that exposure is i want to make this show and my uh, show on sirius xm rural radio farm machinery digest radio better so if i could see exposed to things i could make that better so anyway so this w one video i was watching they had a semi and they had it in the shop and they had a pit in it to work on which was nice we used to have a pit on the farm in the old barn here uh the old garage i should say not barn but anybody for some reason he was taking a drive shaft out i forgot why he was taking and lots of times i'll fast forward this because there's a lot of antics and bs in this stuff and i'm not really interested in that i want to either see, you know see what they're talking about with their crops or what they're planting or they're making or, or what they're doing on the farm i'm interested in being entertained that's me so uh anyway so he's taking the drive shift out says, oh, let me watch this guy take the drive shift out of the semi and he marked nothing 
he marked nothing. He threw the uh, the the caps for the universal joint, the crossbar uh, cross bar uh, caps on the ground. Uh, I mean, throw them on the ground, but uh, uh, he didn't mark the he, he didn't mark anything whatsoever. So, you know, that's the first thing I want to talk about. When you're taking a drive shaft out of something. And even if it's a PTO, if you're taking a PTO apart, and I've spoken about this before, take a paint pen and then mark everything. And you can never have too many marks. And so, you know, if you're going to pull the yoke out of the back of the transmission, mark the yoke, mark the spline. All right, you could mark the yoke and the spline uh, in, in there. Mark the, the, the yoke to the case of the transmission or the transfer case or the differential. You're going to mark the drive shift. So what are, you'll make a mark so you know when you put this back together, all of these marks are going to line up. And people say, well, we don't need to do that, whatever. Well, <clears throat> sometimes you may get away with it, but a good majority of the time you will not. It'll literally take <clears throat> a minute and a half or two minutes to, to mark everything. And the reason why you want to mark everything is that you are not aware now let's pick on a brand so let's say that it's a uh, uh a uh, a versatile i like those versatile tractors they they're uh, have cummins engines like the delta track right but anyway but let's say you work you have a versatile tractor and let's say you work for versatile and if you work for the company then and you know what you're doing because not everybody who works for a company and I'm not, knows what they're doing and it seems to be more and more today if that's the case that nobody knows anything there's no transfer of knowledge some guy in town knows more about it than the person who's supposed to be the representative but let's say that you're very intimate with something on that that you work in engineering you work in the training department what have you you're really intimate with that piece of equipment and the thing is that and you could say oh no you don't have to mark this drive shaft because this is like a neutral balance and we don't do anything whatever all right so there's a reason why you don't have to mark it all right but that's something that you would have learned because you were educated by the manufacturer but the fact the point is that when you work on anything so you're working on a ford pickup truck you're working on a john deere tractor you're working on a hagee sprayer or you work on an apache sprayer you're working on um uh a, a chevy van all these different pieces of equipment the thing is that you don't know where you can and i'm going to use the word cheat or slack off and you and where you can't because there's a lot of equipment out there or vehicles or engines or applications that yes even though the the spinning component the drive shaft the pto shaft can go back in different clock positions without any harmonics or any issue but you don't know that so the rule of thumb basically is that i like to teach is that mark everything you can never have too many marks then you put it back in the same spot when you put it back together you put that if you're changing the yoke or what have you you're changing the yoke on it you're taking the drive shaft out and you're changing the yoke and the universal joints in the yoke mark everything because what will happen is that you could very easily induce a harmonic which is a vibration and in a big piece of equipment like a farm machine you may not feel that vibration but like i always thought, like to say is that what you don't feel doesn't mean the machine doesn't feel it 
And then, so if you mark it and put it back in the same position that it was, as long as you have no problems right prior to that, then I'm not laughing because if it was wrong, it was wrong. But then you have to try to identify what is correct. So please, when you're taking a drive shaft out, you're taking a, a clutch, out, a flywheel out, right? Mark the position. <coughs> Excuse me, mark the position on the any way you can and you could always find the way to mark it because you want to make sure that you're putting everything back in the its proper orientation because you don't know whether whether it's going to be sensitive or not then you know and on the autumn on the road vehicle side I'll, i hate to say automobile but and a lot of these newer vehicles today those drive shafts are so finely balanced that you have to put the bolt right back in that same hole on that same position on the drive shaft to the yoke of the differential so because they they use the bolt as balance so they could either put a washer on the bolt or a machine machine the bolt so a lot of this stuff is very very finely balanced so please mark everything all right so now and like i said now this guy took the semi apart he didn't mark anything he threw everything on the floor and it's going to change the change the universals in it and he'll put it back together maybe he'll be lucky maybe he won't he probably has a better chance of it not being right than being wrong it's just a matter of how wrong is it going to be so it's like going out into the field and saying well you know my seed meter is skewing but you know how bad is it well i'm two percent off three percent off or whatever you're not i'm not 50 percent off but it's going to be wrong now the other thing talking about balance as i was saying is that there's all different levels of balance and when you look at for instance like a a braking system on a vehicle so it's a brake drum or it's a rotor then you have a brake drum or rotor let's we use a rotor for instance for for example and the brake rotor and then you have the wheel bearing and goes onto a onto a spindle an inner and outer wheel bearing and then you have the wheel assembly with a tire on it that goes that bolts onto that now the the rotor from the factory needs to be balanced now so let's say arguably you're going to put new rotors on because the rotor becomes a wear item and you go and buy an aftermarket rotor all right so I'm not attacking the aftermarket the aftermarket rotors all different levels of quality in the aftermarket i will say with rare 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 exception is that that aftermarket rotor is not going to be balanced to the same finite accuracy or degree as the factory rotor was or brake drum so they're going to have it so just because you see a weight on it and there could be a weight that's tacked on lots of times in rotors they'll use a uh, like a i'll call it a song like a piece of pipe and you could see it between some of the cooling fins and that's the that's the balance and so you look at it and it says balanced all right well the thing is that in a box you're buying look a balanced rotor right balanced brake rotor right? only the best here right from china and, and i'm not saying it's bad but the rule of thumb that you need to apply to balance anything that's being balanced mechanical is that the more accurate that you want to get it the more time you're going to spend in it and the and the higher level of accuracy the equipment has to have so when i teach this i like to make an analogy to a checkbook 
all right so and i've used this analogy before is that you could have somebody who has their checkbook balance down to the penny or you could have somebody that says hey if it's in ten dollars or twenty dollars i'm fine i'm happy that's close enough good enough or my wife doesn't listen to the show or never balance it just keep throwing money in it and as long as there's enough money in it that doesn't bounce god knows what it is right we don't have to be that accurate right so we just don't worry about it so the thing is that if you're a person using that metaphor if you're a person that that anything less than a hundred dollars off on your checkbook is not going to bother you all right and then someone who says well i have to be right down i can't be a penny off of my checkbook well they're both considered that the checkbook is balanced right so but the but this one person person a is balanced within a hundred dollars and the other person is balanced to zero dollars zero not even a penny so the one who balances it to zero is a much more accurate balance and that is what happens and specifically when you're looking at anything that's going to spin whether it's a or now let's say a universal joint you're buying we spoke about that in the drive shaft you're buying a, a replacement universal joint so you go to the store or a part store or what have you farm supply store there's brand a b c a b c of the universal joints right now the thing is that the the level of tolerance that that joint is made i'm not going to say they're not going to fit in the yoke i'm not going to say that they're not going to work i'm not saying that whatsoever but oftentimes the price point and not always and i've said that many times before all right the price point is an indicator of how precisely the part is made so now if you have a universal joint and it's not made that precisely so it's heavy on one side then in theory it's going to start to throw that drive shaft out of balance in theory so now the thing is that i know somebody's listening to this someplace and say hot rodder hot rodder you're nuts because it's not going to throw it off that much that you're going to feel it and and you say the machine is going to feel it and and they're going to argue with me and say that the machine is not going to feel it all right and they may be a hundred percent correct because there is a rule of thumb with balance that the from the center of the rotating mass so out from there the the greater the distance from the rotating mass to from the extremity to the center of the rotating mass is has less impact if it's out of balance so arguably if you were to take a dime and spin a dime around let's say on some high speed on something a lathe or something like that and spin a dime around versus spinning a nickel around a quarter a half dollar and then a susan b anthony dollar each coin got bigger so if it's going to be on the same arbor on the lathe is that if the the larger one so it's a greater distance from the from the rotational point all right the greater that distance is the more sensitive it is going to be to the balance so you may say to me well you're not going to feel and you may be a hundred percent correct because the because the a a crossbar universal joint is not that long but the fact of the matter is that there could be a tolerance there and you have to keep that in mind and also you have to keep in mind how it's going to fit and interact with the actual drive shift so <clears throat> the thing base is what i'm trying to say there 
is that if the part is made sloppily, you can't anticipate how it's going to feel, all right? So I'm going to just clear my throat for a second. <coughs> Excuse me, but let's get to a brake rotor. So you buy a brake rotor, you go to town, buy a brake rotor, brake rotor A, B, C. This one is $50, this one is $60, this one is $70, all right? And then the thing is that, so now you do the brake job on this vehicle, this car, pickup truck you put together, the brakes stop, it's fine and what have you, all right? But sometimes you'll notice that it doesn't seem as smooth or there may be a little bit of a harmonic in the vehicle, all right? And you're saying to yourself, well, how can that be because it's balanced? Well, it was not balanced to the same level. It was it was balanced, it was a checkbook balanced to $100 versus a checkbook balanced to a penny. And, and that is very, very, very common. And you could have a lot of applications like that is that uh, you will start to create a harmonic in the vehicle, believe it or not, and especially with these bigger wheel assemblies because now even though the rotor is not that much larger, you could have what the rotor is a certain size and you have a 20-inch wheel on a pickup truck or a 21-inch versus a 16 to 17-inch because you're pulling that centrifugal force. It's pulling it out even though it's not rotating out of balance way out at the end of the tire, but it all becomes magnified so now you have a rim that has an out of balance you have a tire that has an out of balance and you have your your cheapo brake rotor that's out of balance and well i shouldn't say out of let me put that back let me take those words back i'm saying that is not finely balanced and you have this stack up and now you go down the road and you feel a vibration in the vehicle and which was very very common when uh, with a new vehicle on its first brake job because the person would put in cheapo parts. Well, I almost say cheapo parts, less lower quality parts. So you need to keep you need to keep that in mind. Now also what you need to recognize is that on in some applications and specifically with some higher end vehicles, but depends upon on who did it and what equipment that they have is that a lot of times what they'll do is and i did a show on this road force balance i know that uh, that show was in the archives so you could check that out that's a special type of machine but if you get some in some applications what they'll do is that they'll road force balance the tire or the uh, and and then they'll also have a balancer on the car so what they'll do is they'll tweak it so they'll road force balance and they'll balance on the car that is very very rare i'm not going to deny that all right um, but the take-home message here is that if you are having a wheel and tire assembly balanced and um it, like i say it's rare but if the person did on the car balance on the vehicle balance right then that means is that you have to mark it and they should mark a mark on the rim and a mark on one of the studs because that rim that wheel assembly with the rim has to go back on that brake rotor or that brake drum in the same position because if you put it off one stud off in, in clock rotation it is no longer balanced and so i'm just telling you that it's probably rare that you're going to find an on the car balancer but when i worked in the buick dealer as a mechanic we had an on the car balancer and the guys would balance the tires 
and with the whole assembly like that it worked if you if you were good with the machine it worked beautifully because you were you were balancing the brake rotor brake drum the rim and the tire all at one time so you were doing everything together as a unit so you could get a very very beautiful fine balance but if you didn't mark that 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 rim and the stud on the hub whether it's the front wheel or rear wheel the thing is that you could never put that back in balance and then you cannot rotate those tires so because if you were to rotate it because you balanced it all as a unit you didn't so we used to have it where wait the one mechanic would balance the tires and then on the car and then the guy would come back 10,000 mile service and they'd rotate the tires again and they'd rotate the tires and then the thing would come back with a vibration because the tires are rotated so it's rare for you to have that tire but something for you to to know about now the same thing comes into play and it's it's really it's balanced but it's not balanced but like with a farm tractor with road lope on the tire so if you have a lot of road lope lots of times what you will find which goes more to like a a uh, a road force balancer on a for vehicles tire and wheel assembly is that lots of times if you have a lot of road lope with a tractor tire is that that tire is in the wrong clock position on that rim and it needs to be broken down and spun but what they'll and they don't really have a, a true balance machine for that but they have a way of reading that tire and the run out so if you have so if you got new tires on your farm tractor and all of a sudden you have a lot of road lope well it could very well be that that tire is on the wrong what i mean wrong as far as the mass of the rim and the mass of the tire is in the wrong is in the wrong position there so we're going to recap here drive shafts pto shafts cv joints anything that you're going to take out that's going to rotate you're going to want to mark it so that you put it back in the same spot you have a clutch assembly you have a torque converter coming out you know from automatic transmission you're bolting it you're taking it apart mark everything so on a torque converter you're going to want to mark the flex plate you're going to want to mark the con and mark the converter and then you're going to want to put that all back back together all right usually a flex plate like that has a dowel pin usually so you can't put it back in a different clock position but you could put the torque converter and the flywheel back in the same position if you're having an engine balanced all right and it's a beep and the thing is that then again we're getting back to what people say well i had this engine balanced right if it's a part if it's being rebuilt well the you know what level of balance did the shop do it to they could do it to a very sloppy right get back to the checkbook this the checkbook theory is that within a hundred yeah it's within a hundred dollars it's balanced or they could do it very finitely so when you're getting something balanced and the same thing specifically what you'll probably have more exposure to other than tires is you'll have exposure to drive shafts being balanced and if you have some sort of harmonic in a vehicle and lots of times you'll find this with older trucks or grain trucks or something because it's old and the drive shaft was taken out and put back in is that the drive shaft itself can be balanced there are shops that balance a drive shaft and i did some articles on that years ago 
right? But what you'll probably run into that is with turbochargers, is that when you have a turbocharger re repaired, rebuilt, what have you, is that you have to have that 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 the, the turbine and the compressor wheel with the shaft balance there's special balancing equipment for that and then again you need to find out to what level is that turbocharger being balanced so when you buy a cheapo reman i'm not going to say that they don't balance it because they balance it but to what level do they balance it now the thing is that what i'm telling you here may not be that easy to find out all right so you know it may be this all may be moot because the guy we do it to the best balance possible and maybe they do maybe they don't i'm just gonna get a drink of water excuse me <clears throat> excuse me thank you for that so uh anyway but keep in mind that you need to balance that turbocharger that turbocharger is spinning 152 000, rpm and then if it's out of balance not only is it going to wear excessively and you're going to beat it up internally the bearings and then if the bearings were enough you're going to end up having the blades hit the volute but keep in mind that if all of that energy because a turbocharger is works with the expansion of the exhaust gas coming through the housing so all of that energy is not being used to rotate it but it's going to move up and down and rotate it i mean granted move up and down a little bit and i mean and and be shifting not because the bearings are worn because the harmonic the centrifugal forces are pulling it is that it's going to be slower to spool up and it's not going to want to spool up as quickly and it's going to have less throttle response and plus it as i said it's going to wear excessively so the moral of the story is here that if you're taking something apart, you're taking a differential apart, you're taking a clutch apart, a flywheel apart, taking an automatic transmission out, taking a torque and out, you're taking uh, taking some sort of pump apart, all right? You know, let's say you're taking a pump apart from your sprayer. Take 10 seconds and mark everything. So, and, and, you know, even if it makes no difference, at least you have the confidence of saying, I put it back in the same place spot the same position and if i have an issue now with it that i did not have before i know it's not clock position because it's back exactly as it was before i had whatever this problem is so it's very very simple to do that you take a distributor part all right you're going to pull a shaft out of a distributor mark the shaft marked um, the gear on the housing and marked the shaft line it all back up all right it's not a problem maybe that's not truly a balance issue but you have everything back in in the same spot and buy yourself a four dollar paint pen and make some marks and stuff you have something like a combine you're taking apart all right market you have you something in the header you're taking apart market like it's you know i i i say to people what difference does it make and they, they argue it makes no difference I said, what difference does it make it takes you no longer to put this pulley back or this gear back on this shaft in the same position it was before by just the two paint dots that you put in there that's all i said what difference does it make i said so why fight it all right why fight it put it back put it back together the same way that it came apart in the same position and you have no issues to be concerned with 
two paint dots, three paint dots, and away you go. All right, and those paint pens dry so quickly that by the time you put the lid back on the paint pen and walk over to put it back in your tail 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 box toolbox, it's all balanced, it's all it's all dry, and you move forward with it. No big deal if it's something that you're going to blast or something you may want to make an etch mark with something. All right, you may want to make a scribe mark, but the whole idea is that lots of times over the years the problems that i've been exposed to with trying to help people is that and they were balance issues and they were balance issues that created harmonics and created but and created long-term problems wiping out bearings for instance let's say you have something out of balance and you know they you could balance all those parts in the header of a combine i mean the thing is that uh but you know and so, oh, this thing keeps eating bearings it keeps eating bearings now the first one lasted well the last great or i had this differential apart and now it's eating bearings well like i said you know the same thing happens with trailer tires i spoke about it's like zero people balance trailer tires all right and how many people go and they haul something with a trailer i'm not talking like a semi-trailer that should be balanced also but a smaller trailer and they keep blowing tires well when you're when you don't have a tire balanced on a trailer horse trailer car trailer utility trailer uh gooseneck trailer that you use on your farm and those wheels aren't balanced on there there's a number of things happening first of all number one you're putting a harmonic through that whole trailer you don't feel it in the cab of the truck but if you're hauling horses or hauling animals they feel it all right so out of respect to them plus also what you're doing is you're shaking this whole trailer to pieces all right a thousand miles at 80 miles an hour harmonic shaking everything all right you're and you're also building excessive heat in the tire because the tire even though it may not be bouncing off the ground it is loading and unloading and loading and unloading and if you were to be able to look at finitely look at that side wall on the tire even though it's going to load and unload all right it loads and unloads excessively and that tire goes up and down and it's going up and down like that it's building excessive heat and then if god forbid you have to stop just exaggerate instead of the tire being in constant content contact with the full tread pattern onto the road surface the tread pattern is, is getting smaller and bigger smaller and bigger and when you slam on the brakes you're not getting effective braking so it's it, it it all comes into play balance whether it's an engine whether it's a crankshaft whether it's connecting rods on the crankshaft, the rotating set, whether it's a tire, whether it's a clutch, whether it's a drive shift, whether it's a yoke on a differential, whether it's an axle, the thing is that put it back in the same spot and you have nothing to worry about. And if you do have a problem with something, let's say you bought a used piece of equipment, a used tractor, you're having you're having some sort of issue with something all right then there there are balance shops that specialize in balancing almost anything so and usually what they do is they it's called industrial balance 
um, the the type of business you know Ray's industrial balance or Ray's in you know Joe's industrial balance or Hackett's down balancing industrial balance and you'll be able to take something and you'll be able to get that balanced and then when you do get that balance and invest and speak to the person don't just throw it there or send in the mail say at what level can we balance this to and have a dialogue with them and let them explain to you what they're doing because you want to be able to have a very fine balance on whatever spins and then you your machinery will love it it'll last longer it'll be smoother and it will uh it'll serve you much better and it's it's just it's just going to be right and plus you'll have the enjoyment of using it and you will feel a difference i mean like i mean in a big semi would you feel would you feel something well you probably would feel something depending how bad it is and what you're talking about but most importantly and that's what this show is about it's not making you happy it's making the machine happy because agriculture runs on machinery but the profits of your farm run on the reliability of that machinery and you cannot put harmonics into any type of any type of machine whether even an electric drill and use it continuously and not have a degradation in its reliability forget about it i'm not worried about your hand vibrating using the drill all right that's a personal thing right that it bothers you but if you're going to make anything last when you put harmonics and you know just like you have you when you have weeds in a field with a crop you got crop you got yield loss it's just a matter of how much yield loss you have. You have yield loss. And when you put a lot of harmonics into machinery, you are going to have a loss of efficiency and a loss of reliability. All right, so any questions, arguments, please feel free to reach out to me at Hot Rod Farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. So now we're going to get Tex Rubinowitz in here from Ripsaw Records. He's getting ready for the toolbox test. Everybody, thank you so much. Okay, here's our toolbox test. You guys ready? You got your thing and cap on? You have an old Chevy C60 with a 350 and a carburetor. Last summer, it had a rocker arm break and bend the push rod. You purchased all new rocker arms and push rods and installed them. The engine sounded great, but about a thousand miles later, one day on your way to town it started misfiring a rocker worked off from the valve stem the nut that adjusts the preload to the stud was tight you ask a few friends for their opinion farmer a says that the camshaft is bad and that is why the rocker is falling off farmer b states that the threads are worn on the adjusting nut Farmer C is confident that the push rod is the wrong length, which impacts the geometry of the rocker arm to the valve stem. And Farmer D believes that when you adjusted the preload, the lifter was not on the base circle of the cam. And what the base circle is, if you're not familiar with, if you look at a cam lobe, right, there's the nose of the cam, which is the high point, and then the bottom of the cam, which is the round part, where there is no lift whatsoever, is what is called the base circle. All right, so you guys think about that, and I'm going to hopefully, God willing, help out 
Mr. Gene Thurm, if I pronounce it correctly. So he writes to me, I have a 3020 John Deere with a gas engine that usually fires up initially, but then occasionally shuts off. When this happens, it can be very difficult to get it running again, especially in colder weather. I am relatively sure the fuel line is the fuel line is not the fuel i actually was running out of ink in my printer so i copied this by hand uh, i'm relatively sure the fuel that fuel line icing is not the cause any suggestion would be greatly appreciated and i don't know where this gentleman is from okay <clears throat> now the thing is that well first of all gene <clears throat> Mr. Thurm, if I don't answer your question in it to a level of satisfaction, it helps you just reach back out to me because I need to really have a little bit more information than what I have here. So I'm assuming that you say that the fuel line is not icing. So I'm assuming that this happens only in the colder weather, the winter weather. Then again, I don't know where you're from. So uh, if you're from Florida, then obviously it's not going to ice. But since you said that, I'm assuming you're in a colder climate. I'm also assuming that this does not happen during the warmer weather, during the summertime. So that is why you brought up icing. So now, if it's a John Deere 3020 with a gas engine, there is probably a very, very good possibility, the likelihood is a better word, that it has an up updraft carburetor. And one of the things with an updraft carburetor is that you really can't see in there to see what's going on, all right, uh, with a downdraft carburetor and a tractor carburetor, it doesn't normally have an accelerator pump. So if it was, let's say, on a rake, an automotive-style engine, you could look down the carburetor, you could see if there's any any gas in there, you could sh move the throttle, see if the accelerator pump is shooting to tell if the bowl has gas in it. So it's going to be hard for you to determine what is going, whether it's truly running out of gas or not. Now, a lot of those, a lot of those carburetors from that era had a petcock drain on the bottom of the bowl. So what I want you to try to determine, if possible, if it is running out of gas. So, if, and I don't mean running out of gas, that there's no gas in the tank, that it's running out of gas to the carburetor. Now, if it's running out of gas to the carburetor, and that's why it's dying all of a sudden and makes it hard to start, because I believe that's a that may be a twelve volt, but could be possibly a six volt. But the thing is, it's hard to start is because the carburetor has no gas in it, and you're not supplying the engine any gas. So now these are my random thoughts. Okay, the first thought is that the needle valve is sticking in the seat of the, in the needle and seat. So the needle valve is sticking in the seat of the carburetor, and what could be happening is that on occasion that the needle valve sticks and then it doesn't allow any more gas into the carburetor bowl and it runs out of gas so when you run the bowl out of gas which would not take long especially under load a few seconds if even that maybe 20 30 seconds if like i say if even that and it's out of gas and you go to restart it and crank it and if that needle valve is sticking 
then that float is stuck and the float is completely up. So it thinks that the gas, is, the ball is full of gas and there's no gas in the ball whatsoever. In that particular instance, what you could do is just take the butt of a screwdriver and tap the carburetor, wrap it, you're not going to hurt it with the handle of a screwdriver, wrap it where the fuel inlet line comes in, because where the fuel inlet line comes in, historically is where the needle valve will be. And you could see if that float, if that float drops. But then again, keep in mind that if you have to crank it to get the float ball full, it's not going to start immediately unless you pour or spray some carburetor cleaner. I don't like to use ether. Spray some carburetor cleaner in through the air clean air, air filter assembly and then let it start on that because you'd have the higher velocity of the engine. And if it has a mechanical fuel pump, I don't know whether it has just gravity feed or mechanical fuel. So the thing basically is, is that you have to see that if it's <clears throat> try to determine if that carburetor is running out of gas now if that carburetor is running out of gas all right and it is not the needle valve sticking now i don't know when the last time the carburetor is apart but over the years if it hasn't been apart for a long time and we had this with an old 9n happened with the same thing it would run beautifully start right up run beautifully we'd be going in the field back then we were plowing and, and then we couldn't get it started couldn't get it started and what was happening is that the needle valve material that it was made out of with the modern reformulated gasoline with its with with and i'm a i'm a proponent of ethanol but ethanol has less lubricity it was actually sticking and why it stuck who knows it may go a week without sticking and it may go five times the next day stick that i was never able to to get a handle on and it would stick and that would be exactly what would happen so what we had found is that back then if you put some a small amount of marvel mystery oil in with the gasoline it wasn't much i, I should i can't tell you what we put in not much to offer a little lubricity it solved the problem but also if you probably get a newer needle and seat for it then a newer needle and seat would be made from a material that is going to uh live better and not want to bind up with the ethanol and the gas or the lack of lubricity but then keep in mind if you have gas coming to crack the line and you have gas coming to the carburetor then you have to work yourself backwards because you could have a plugged vent in the gas tank and if you have a plugged vent in the gas tank then a certain dynamic is happening when the when the gas gets to be a certain temperature in the tank a certain level and why i say a temperature because it's going to want to gas it's going to want to expand they call it vapor pressure on gasoline and it could actually stop the flow even with a fuel pump that you could starve it so the thing basically is you have to de you have to determine that all right so keep and wait the best way to determine it would be to try it with the cap loose the fuel cap loose and see if it is not if that solves the problem now i don't know how consistently it does it because like our 9n was a pain in the neck because it would run fine run fine and you think you had it fixed and all of a sudden it came and it taught showed you that you don't have it that you don't have it fixed now i'm assuming that you're thinking it's gasoline but don't forget that it could be ignition 
So you're going to have to determine if you didn't already do it, whether it has, whether it's losing spark or not. So uh, lots of times a, a spark problem, people will go and think it's gasoline. So in essence, let me see your letter again here, is that uh, reach out to me at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com and uh, we could set up something to talk on the telephone and I could get a little bit more information. But I have no basis for this whatsoever, but I would not be surprised if the carburetor, the needle valve is sticking in the carburetor and that is what's happening. And also keep in mind that if you have a loose fitting uh, someplace in the fuel line and it's sucking some air, that you're aerating the fuel. But for it to shut off like that intermittently, it's usually not aerating the fuel. It's either just ran completely ran out of fuel in the bowl or it's an electrical problem that, that, you're, that you're missing. And so what we could do is we could run it, the tractor, with a voltmeter on the coil so uh, and see if we're losing the voltage to the coil. But I would tend to think it's probably the needle valve sticking in the carburetor. But give me a shout at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com, and we will go from there. All right, thank you so much. And then, you know, before I close, I do want to say, and I, I'm neglectful to say this, I should have said in the beginning, I want to give a shout, shout out to my listener, Mike Werner, over, over, I believe it's in Minnesota, uh, or Wisconsin. I get the, always get that. But Mike Werner, you know where you're from. I want to thank you so much, and I have to write you, I'm going to write you a note. I just got tied up. I want to thank you so much for listening to my New Year message podcast and for your beautiful, heartfelt message to me. And I want you to know that I appreciate you so much as a listener and uh, just a first-class individual, and God willing, we'll be able to meet one day. And I do have your letter about your pickup truck, and I have not forgotten you, and I need to, to open up a dialogue with you on that. So hopefully, by the time you've listened to this, I would already have sent you an email and if I didn't send you an email shortly thereafter, and I am going to be sending you an email in response to your uh, note to me about the 2022, my prayer for you, for my audience during the year. So I want to thank you so much for that, and I apologize for being being neglectful and getting back to you, which I did not intend for it to be a week for me not to get back to you a little bit more. So I meant to say it in the opening. All right, so now let's get back to here to our toolbox test. So Farmer C is correct. If the replacement push rod is the wrong length, the rocker will ride off the valve stem. The push rod length is critical, especially if the rocker has a roller tip but it is essential even without without a roller tip design. There is a certain geometry, so it's the relationship of the whole valve train, and historically it is adjusted by the length of the push rod. So now the push rod is not is the push rod is not adjustable, but push rods are made in different lengths. 
So depending upon if the valve was ever cut, whether the seats were cut, all these dynamics come together. And so what will happen is that's called rocker arm geometry. And it is is usually manipulated or adjusted with the length of the push rod. So you'll have push rods that are 100,000 longer, push rods that are 100,000 shorter. So the thing basically is most likely in this particular instance, the push rod was the wrong length if it's a hundred thousandths of an inch you if you looked at it quickly and put it together you're not going to see that and then the rocker arm when the when the when the lifter follows the cam the rocker actually rides right off the stem of the valve why did it take a thousand miles or so for this to happen because the it the new rocker probably seated in the geometry was was borderline right maybe the the farmer jumped on the engine to pass somebody rpm went up who knows right but it's something called rocker arm geometry when anybody who builds performance engines is very familiar with it but in an instance like this you go and get the wrong length push rod it's not going to be six inches off so i mean so it's you know, like i say if it's a hundred thousandths off and then you end up having problems now a, a regular stamp steel flat surface rocker arm has a lot more forgiving is a lot more forgiving than anyone with a roller tip because the roller will ride off the tip but if you're not having enough coverage in other words that stem of that valve is riding right on the tip of that stamped steel rocker it's not going to take much for it to come off and when it comes off the rocker drops down the push rod comes up it gets ugly lots of times what could happen is is that you could actually push the way the rocker falls off or is falling off it pushes on the retainer the retainer depresses on one side the locks pop off and the valve drops into the engine so keep that keep that in mind all right maybe we'll do a show on that one day but that's actually a better video type of show because you really have to show the sweep of the rocker arm on the stem of the valve and it's very hard to explain that with just a podcast so listen i want to thank you so much for tuning in and i don't want you to forget that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher my beloved beloved america you have a blessed day and i'll catch you next week thank you bye-bye